0: Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This is the day today, October 1st, that Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, is available in bookstores, any book retailer, go get it. As part of our ongoing conversation this week, we are taking an in-depth look at this book. And today, uh, my good friend, John Reuter, one of our board members, is going to interview me about a couple of the chapters. Enjoy. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week is the launch of the book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. And we thought it would be great to bring in some of our favorite guests, some of our favorite people to chat about different parts of the book. And today I have one of my best friends, uh, one of our board members, John Reuter on the line. John, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast.
1: It is a pleasure to be here. Although, although a bit surreal to be coming on to your podcast, um, <laughs> for me to now interview you about your book. Um, but I'm going to try to, uh, take control to some degree here and, uh, maybe answer some of the questions I've had about a couple of these chapters.
0: That would be awesome. I, I do have to say in the surreal department, how many years have we talked about this? Really? I has been a long time, right? <laughs> oh gosh. Back since
1: what? When we were, when we were driving across the state of Idaho. Yeah. Um, uh, with Andrew, our board chair, in 2013. So we've been doing this for about, what, six, seven years now. And then before that, you know, I just knew you as a blog on the internet when I was back on a small city council in Sandpoint, Idaho, a little town in North Idaho, about 6,000 people. And uh, a neighboring uh, city planner had exposed me to your blog. And I started reading and going, hey, this actually connects with a lot of things happening here. And I think actually before we ever met i wrote some nice comment to you that quoted on the blog and that was a big highlight of my day so it's come <laughs> from that now there being a book um where i was like a early reader to now being here to say wait wait chuck i don't know what you're talking about here is quite an evolution
0: yeah that's hilarious um <laughs> it's funny cuz people will tell me i emailed you and and i always get this like deep, immediate, like pit in my stomach. Like, Oh no, you emailed me and I didn't get back to you. And uh, they'll say, Oh no, you got back to me. I'm like, Oh, thank you. So I'm, I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad you had that early affirming experience. We try to, I try to reply, <laughs> take good comments and do happy things with them. So good.
1: That part was really positive, but I'll tell you what wasn't really positive <laughs> okay. back then was, was the strong town's message. Which was pretty gloomy. And today, right, we're going to tackle chapters four and five uh, the infrastructure cult and the growth or stability. And these strike me as really early strong towns concepts, right, that are
0: pretty gloomy. Yeah. Th- actually, when my mom read this at this point, she said, This is really depressing. <laughs> Uh, she, did, she did tell me later that it got, I got a lot better. So, um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think one of the things we struggled with early on is we had this, this message of, wow, this is a mess. But then the reply and, and logically, so I get it was, okay, how do you fix it? And even in our drive across Idaho for a week, we iterated on that and worked on that and tried to refine the approach. And I, I think even at the end, we weren't completely satisfied with the answer. You know, it's certainly not to the degree that I think I'm proud to present it now.
1: I want to jump into the details of this chapter, but I'm just curious, what was it like to you in that early time period of going around and giving the talk, getting right, this curbside chat that you've done for years, getting to the end of it and having people say, okay, we maybe we're a little skeptical, but we're starting to buy what you're telling us here that our that our cities are, go, are going broke. Um, we can see that. We can see that the infrastructure that we're building, we can't afford to pay for it. Uh, but what do you want us to do? And you sitting there going like, well, I haven't actually gotten to that part yet. Like, what was that experience like at this point Just getting people on board, ready to take action, but then, then no one knowing quite sure what to do?
0: Right. It was deeply frustrating to me. I think for a couple of reasons. The first one is that, It felt like uh, an invalidation right off the top. Like, uh, don't come and tell us that things are not working unless you have the five-step plan to fix them. Like, we're going to invalidate the observations you have. And a lot of my, at that point, my background in engineering and planning kind of the culture is when you have a problem, you raise it. You, you don't necessarily have to have like the five point plan. I didn't realize that at that point that I had maybe transitioned from engineer planner to something more along the lines of, of public policy or cultural conversation. I was still treating the world like we were logical engineers trying to solve a problem. And I was raising the problem. And my, my kind of sense was, hey, everybody step up and let's solve this together. I remember saying over and over, well, you've got to think about it. <laughs> As my wife says, that's not a very good way to make your point, to tell others to think. It was deeply frustrating. I will say that that frustration channeled me to have to think about these things fundamentally different. It really pushed me in ways that were uncomfortable, but ultimately deeply satisfying because it, it forced me to get into the cognitive psychology and the group behavior and, and a lot of areas of study and insight that I, I, never, I never would have pondered if people would have just said, oh yeah, great insight. We'll take it from here, which is kind of what I was hoping people would do.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like you know, like your mom spent maybe a few hours or maybe a day in a depressed part after reading these chapters. And my experience with you, you spent a few years in that place um, <laughs> going like, yeah, this is really depressing. What do we what do we do about it now? Uh, um, yes. Right? And it, was sort of, and it was sort of that long thing there. And I think part of why that was so hard right in that moment, as you write about it here, is really what these chapters are about, is about this, this way that we've evolved to think about the world. And by we, I mean like as an entire society, right? Both the United States, but probably globally as well, about how we think about growth. About how we think about infrastructure and just really about our mindset. That's really what holds these chapters together is this mindset that we've come together in. Can you talk about this mindset that you refer to as the infrastructure cult? Yeah. What, what is that?
0: Well, I, I I used to be in it, right? Like I was a I was a key part of it. I, I kind of feel like there's a confession aspect of this, or at least a a, a bloodletting. Maybe you know, you said you spent many years depressed. I think that's a really accurate description. And, and you lived through part of that with me, my wife and, and my family have lived through longer of it with me. This internal reckoning maybe is the best way to say it, that the way we're doing things served me really well in my professional life. It gave me power. It gave me prestige. It gave me good income. It got me work, but wasn't serving society very well is a really painful thing to to reckon with. So what what I try really hard to do in both of these chapters is to explain why, maybe myself, maybe I'm, I'm trying to let myself off the hook a little bit, but explain why rational, thoughtful, caring, compassionate humans can essentially come to believe something that's not true. In this case, that massive amounts of infrastructure spending will make us all better off. I start the chapter in four with these quotes from important economists and, and political figures. And I go across the aisle. I mean, I try to reach everywhere as a way to say like, look, important people believe this. Uh, we listen to them and, and we intuitively believe them. Let's all start here together and in a sense recognize that there's a problem and we have to dig into our own psyche in a bit and recognize that we didn't get here because all of a sudden we woke up one day and believed it. We got here because of a long succession of cultural public policy, political and economic insights kind of evolved and mashed together over many, many decades. If we take them as part of this longer narrative, we can see how we got here. But if we step back and look, which is what we actually need to do this stuff is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I feel like getting back to your, your observation, I feel like what I'm trying to do here is bring people on a journey in a couple chapters that took me a a decade, a decade of like pain (laughs) and depression. I want you to get through that in an afternoon.
1: So oftentimes cults, right. Have texts that they look to one of the texts that, that the infrastructure cult looks to is these semi-regular reports that the American Society of Civil Engineers puts out that basically talk about how we need a lot more infrastructure spending and the benefits that will come from that and the dangers that will happen if we don't do that spending. Can you, can you talk about those? You use an example from the book from, from 2011 of this failure tax report. I don't know if you want to talk about that one in particular, just in general, these reports that come out pretty regularly.
0: I'd love to, you just nudge something in my brain though. You said cults often have these texts and I was thinking a little bit like back in the day of the the Greeks and the Spartans where they would, uh, they would go and consult the, uh, I can't remember what the name, the technical name they had for them, but the seers, the 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 people, the oracle up on top of the hill, and they would cut open some sheep and like look at their entrails and you know say, oh, you can go to war, you you can't. And the Spartan generals and and leaders, they knew this was hocus pocus. I mean, they knew this was not real. But w- what they did is they all basically could point then at each other for validation. So the oracles looking at the entrails, could essentially point to the leadership and say, look, they're buying into this, ergo, I'm validated. And the leadership could point to the oracles and say, you know, that they're here telling us we need to go to war, ergo, we're validated. And in a sense, even though the underlying thing was total BS, in a sense, everybody could point at everybody else and get their validation. To me, this is what the American Society of Civil Engineers Infrastructure Report Card has become, this organization puts out this document. All the public officials, media outlets, and everyone refer to it in order to make their case for more infrastructure spending. Ergo, the fact that they refer to it gives it prestige and allows the American Society of Civil Engineers to be this organization that deserves our respect and deserves to be taken seriously. When we look at it, the numbers are absurd. And I have two in the, in the book that You know, I've (laughs) just drove me nuts when they came out, and now I've seen it again and again and again. One report they wrote said families and businesses will lose $1.1 trillion over the next decade if we fail to act, fail to invest the money we need in infrastructure. Then later on in the report, it says, How much money do we need? Well, we need $220 billion per year. The funny thing about propaganda is if you Don't really think that through. I mean, if you just take it at face value, you've got this big number, 1.1 trillion, embedded in your mind. It's actually a psychology trick of imprinting. They kind of anchor your brain around this huge number. And then later on, they give you a smaller number. And you're like, oh, well, that that seems reasonable, 220 billion. That's much less than 1.1 trillion. But the 220 billion is per year. So if you just multiply by 10, what you get (laughs) is... We're recommending you spend 2.2 trillion in order to save 1.1 trillion. That's like an absurdity on like a bionic scale. Yet the Washington Post reported this, the New York Times reported this, you know, the Wall Street Journal reported this, all these magazines, you know, that cover this stuff reported this exactly as the infrastructure cult, the American Society of Civil Engineers put, put this out. I remember the, the other one that was just mind-blowing to me the report that I referred to came out during the parts of the great recession when unemployment was just getting jacked up. We were getting these you know, huge layoffs amounts every week. And the American society of civil engineers report said, if we don't make these investments in infrastructure, we're going to have 400,000 fewer jobs in 2040 than we have today. That very week, the exact week that that report came out there were 400,000 new jobless claims. So 400,000 people, uh, new people entered the unemployment rolls. And you look, and it again, it was reported in all these major... You went to the Wall Street Journal, and on one page is 400,000 new jobless claims this week. And then like four pages later, it's American Society of Civil Engineers said, we will be without 400,000 jobs over the next 30 years if we don't spend 6.6 6 trillion. The absurdity of this. And the kind of ease at which it is both accepted and then repeated, the only way I could describe that is a cult. Like, like, how else would you suspend all belief in such dramatic fashion?
1: But it's so strange. It could have just sprung up from nothing, right? This, this set of beliefs and that kind of report and the acceptance of it, it really relies on this, this desperation we have for growth. Right and continued growth and dependence on growth and you talk about like basically the water that we're swimming in together and wa- how that set up the stage for the infrastructure cult to actually be able to grow in this way and have this kind of resonance in our culture.
0: Right. I think this is a story that, in my mind, I was maybe a little too myopic to understand the the way I do today, both because it was too convenient for me not to, yeah, you know, as a professional working in this, but also just I, I think. Almost like politically, we have these political narratives about the economy that we tell ourselves that are very difficult to, to break through. One of the things that I struggled with was my grandfather, who was a, a great guy. He was a great man. He uh, you know, worked as a foreman at the paper mill here in town for, for decades. He's a guy who did not finish college. I remember when I was at basic training in the army, he wrote me a letter and it was the only time I ever saw my grandfather write something. And, and it was as if written by like a fourth grader, right? It, it was um, not very good penmanship, words spelled wrong. It deeply affected me. I still have the letter today um, that this guy who was you know, borderline illiterate, I mean, he could read, but, but it was a struggle for him, would do this. This is a guy who told me, if not for FDR, if not for the New Deal, I would be dead right now. I looked at him. I remember when he said this to me, I was a, I was a young man. I remember he said this, I looked at him and I thought that that's absurd Grandpa. (laughs) My grandfather was more of a FDR Democrat. I was more at the time in 1990s Republican and the Republican revolution going on Congress. I remember thinking, well, that's not how economies work. You know, grandpa, like the new deal was, was all bad. And what are you talking about? And I remember my reaction, my gut reaction being, you don't know what you're talking about, old man. I've, Pondered his statement a lot because I've I've heard it in other corners, and what he's really was describing. And this is a guy who was no weakling. When he said I would be dead, he's not saying because I you know I was I was dependent on. Uh, this is a guy who slept in a barn for years uh, because his family couldn't afford to feed him. And he uh, literally moved into a farmer's house, slept in, lived in their barn. And then, you know, the farmer would feed him if he helped out around the farm. This is what he did for a couple of years as a teenager, as a, you know, <laughs> he joined the, uh, the Marines and was one of the first troops into Nagasaki at the end of World War II. So this was not a, a guy who, you know, sat around lamenting the, the tough things in his life. He worked hard. He was a tough guy. But to say that he would die without this, it, it just struck me later on in life that what he was really describing was this level of fear and desperation that I, I don't think anyone in modern times has ever experienced. I mean, certainly you and I never have. The idea that where would my next meal come from? Where where would I earn a modest amount of money to clothe myself? You know, where would I live? I want to live in this barn. And we're talking about a barn in Minnesota in the winter. I mean, (laughs) we're not talking about, oh, I've I've got a crappy apartment. So it's made me, thinking about this, made me a lot more understanding of the desperation that that generation had coming out of World War II. Uh, You had gone through depression. You had gone through these global wars, which really were wars of, you know, we could, as a civilization, go away. We were rushing to find who could get the atomic bomb first, which we, you know, today understand the the destructive capacity of. But back then, uh, you know, you had these superpowers of the day going after this weapon that would have changed everything. The idea that this group would demobilize, uh, everybody would come back home. Uh, we would send home, you know, the the women and other people who had gone to work in factories, and the thing would just return to normal. I think is a little too much to ask. You had a, a generation united by struggle, not wanting to essentially fall back into the malaise and desperation that they had had. And with all this new capacity in terms of technology, be it the automobile or, or radio or soon to be you know, television, The fact that we had all the gold in the world, we had the world's reserve currency, we had really, really cheap oil, we were the world's leading oil producer, it's very, very easy to understand why this generation would say, you know what? We can fix everything. We can fix everything right now. Let's take all of this capacity we have and let's turn it towards rebuilding an entire continent. we talk a lot, we nostalgize the Marshall Plan, and the Marshall Plan was rebuilding a continent that was destroyed by war. But what the greatest generation did when they came home from World War II, the generation that preceded the boomers, is they said, you know, we're going to remake this continent, and we're going to take all of our capacity and, and redo it and fix these problems of depression and fix the problems of congested cities and fix the problems of bad sanitation and bad public health and all these things that had literally plagued humanity for for hundreds, thousands of years. We're going to fix them because we can. It's within our reach. We have the capacity to do this. I think it's easy to discount them today because we see how a lot of this turned out. I think I owed it to my grandfather to at least spend the time thinking about why they might have thought this great experiment was warranted.
1: Where did that capacity come from to do this great project? I mean, that's a lot of resources, right? And as you were saying, in a time when the country was coming back, there was certainly, um, the kind was better than it was before the war. I mean, that, that's a lot of financial resources, the interstate highway system to build the infrastructure out, to do the great work of the great society. Where does all of this where 's the funding for
0: all of this come from? yeah, you look, and at the time the government had incredibly high levels of debt i mean every every time we 've gone through a war, and particularly you know in this instance where we had World War I, then we had this this boom in the twenties that kind of tried to reset where we were at the end of World War I, then you had the bust following the boom, you had the the Great Depression, and then this huge amount of spending in World War two. When we step back and look, the federal government was highly, highly indebted. A lot of the the capacity for building came from essentially shifting what we were doing as Americans into this new approach. So let me say this in two ways. I think a little bit of it was financial trickery. We have the capacity uh, to, to a sense loan money into existence. And we started to shift uh, our economy from one where uh, things happen very slowly and incrementally, largely through uh, savings and investment, to one where we could kind of juice everything with loans and debt and increasing our debt capacity. We also just gradually over time, kind of started reaching into our own our own systems and structures and made them, over time, more efficient, more productive, more streamlined. And, and you can even look at like our cultural narrative today. I mean, we talk about all this in terms of efficiency. We've made a, a system that is, is far more efficient and, and that we definitely have. I, I tell the story about the Minnesota miracle, which is something we here in, in my home state nostalgize a lot. Uh, we look at it as a narrative of us all coming together to solve a big problem and you know essentially it's a it's the modern financial version of stone soup you know we everybody pitches in a little bit and we get this great result that is all of us together so the minnesota miracle was uh the state of minnesota said we can be more efficient uh what we're going to do is get rid of local taxation uh local rules and, and nuances we're going to uh, centralize and and make efficient all the sales tax provisions, all the property tax provisions, all the ways of funding government. We're going to do that now, not at the local level, but at the state level. So if you are a business coming into the state of Minnesota, because we're business friendly, we want to grow. If you're a business looking to locate from one city to the other, you don't have to go to city hall and work through all these parochial little exemptions and exceptions they have. You don't have to figure out, you know, the different business licensing rules one city might have that a, another one don't. We, we want to make this efficient. So we're just going to do this at a statewide level, uh, have kind of a one size fits all system. And therefore it will be very efficient and, and we can kind of reduce and streamline government and really get the private sector to work. We did that. And you know what? It worked amazingly well. It worked really, really well because if you were a McDonald's franchise, you could come in and you could open up all over the state, hundreds of different stores in different places. And you knew what your tax structure was. You knew what your withholding was. You didn't have to go talk to some silly little mayor somewhere and work something out. You could just do it at scale. The big box stores, the malls, the, you know, all the development, all this stuff could now be done very, very efficiently. And there's a narrative that we tell ourselves about efficiency and productivity and you know, this growth strategy that is absolutely anchored in that lived experience. It's what we give up as doing that. That's the, that's the trade-off. And that's the, that's the thing that I try to ultimately lead people to in this chapter is you can have efficiency, but you, you give up stability. You can, have, you can reach into all these different reservoirs and create growth. But you give up something. And what is that? To me, that's stability. It's the thing we lack right now more than anything else.
1: and all of this is financed right through a combination of of debt, right? There's municipal debt. there's federal debt. there's state debt, and there's a lot of personal debt inside of all of this too. You know, as you write, what's happening is we're borrowing today to consume now on the theory that later, um the growth that we've created is gonna be able to enable us to pay that back with more ease. Right. And we've sort of become we've sort of become addicted to that whole thing of like we're gonna consume now and then we'll pay back later. And this is gonna be a good deal for our future selves because of the growth that we're gonna induce in that in that gap between those two times.
0: Right, right. You you saw this in Sandpoint, didn't you? I mean, this is a, a common narrative, right? Oh yeah, for sure. No,
1: you see it with all you see it with all sorts of things. Sandpoint is a little fortunate because of some of the constraints around its geography, both being pushed back on from being able to annex too far out and having a neighboring city that took on most of the suburban experiment development around it. So it's not that you don't see it at all, but you certainly see it less than in, than in some of the, you know, it, it's been, um, they were able to externalize some of that, some of those decision-making. Right. Does that make sense? Right, right, um, right. I think the place that's most interesting shows up on is when people think they're being really responsible. We'll say, okay, we're having new growth come in and we get actually now, we're pretty smart. So we understand that new growth doesn't fully pay for itself, right? And there's a lot of cities that have started figuring this out, that new growth actually requires new roads. It's going to require us to build some new schools. It's going to require new infrastructure and not just literally on the site where it's at, but all over town to create the services and provide things. Maybe we need a new fire station, right? And that one subdivision may not require a total fire station, but it's going to require 5% of a new fire station, right? And so we've created these clever tools like uh, impact fees, right? And what impact fees are, when a new subdivision comes in, um, that developer, essentially, when you're building these things, pays these impact fees to pay for infrastructure off-site.
0: Right. It's their share, Right. Theoretically, they're share, right?
1: Their share of that infrastructure, right? So that could be an expansion of a road, or that could be a new, all those things that I mentioned before, right? Uh, could be things for sewer and water, a pump station, whatever it is. Their their share of it, and so you know we were really clever, so we started collecting those impact fees from developers and had a pretty robust model to uh, to say like, hey, you need to uh, you need to pay us money for these things. Now that really caused. Two things to happen. One, right, we increased the cost of housing, right, because somebody has to pay for those costs there, and so you're going to see a, you're going to see some level, and not a dramatic level, but some level of increase in housing costs. But the other thing that it did is it gave us this money to expand infrastructure when we already had infrastructure that was difficult for us to afford, and so we're actually saying, hey, we're going to require you to give us money this cycle for the expansion of this new road. But the new tax income from that development wouldn't pay for the cycle of that road in 30 years from then, right? And so what we were doing really was saying, we're going to extract revenue from you now in the short term, and we're going to take on a long-term liability in exchange for that. And that's just a really terrible
0: deal, right? <laughs> it's horrible. I remember the exact meeting I was sitting at, and this is back before I even started writing for Strong Towns. I mean, this would have been mid-2000s. I remember sitting at this meeting, looking around the table at everybody there. And I was there as the city planner, but there was the, the politicians and the developers and the engineers and the surveyors and, and all the people involved in this big project that we were doing. It was self-evident. It was, it was easy to see for anyone who wanted to look. And I had at this point looked, I had done the, the math on this one, that this project was a loser for the public. We, we were going to get a little bit of revenue and then we were going to take on this massive long-term liability to maintain this infrastructure. And we were not going to get anywhere near the growth that, that wouldn't be needed to meet this obligation. And I remember sitting there looking around the table, making conscious note of yeah, you make money here. You make money here. You benefit politically, you benefit politically, you make money. And it wasn't like a condemnation of these people as individuals, it was the recognition that none of us had the incentive to ask the pertinent question. None of us had the, the like deep incentive to say, okay, what about this narrative that we invest today and tomorrow we'll be better off? The reality is, is we invest today. All of us today will be better off. <laughs> Everybody sitting around this table will be better off for sure. Like That is guaranteed. And then we are kind of hoping that everyone believes, and we're, we actually maybe believe it too because we really haven't been forced to confront it, uh, that everyone would be better off in the future. This is why I make that point about pensions, which I'm interested in your reaction to, John. I don't know if you and I have actually ever talked about that before, but I, I make an argument about pensions there. Do you, do you find that convincing? Did you, you remember that one? No, I do. And I, I
1: find it convincing, right, how we, how we take costs today and we push them out into the future in a belief that things are going to work out, right? That, that we're going to have more money then, that we're going to keep growing, but there's going to be a bigger payday out there. I think the pensions one is interesting because it required a generation of workers to defer wealth, to defer benefit into the future instead of getting it right then. It's a little different than these other dynamics that take place where I, I get the road today, but the cost comes due later, but I'm actually benefiting in the short term. I think the interesting thing about the pension dynamic that makes it such a, a complex, fraught situation, as you point out in the book, is that people set, agreed to sacrifice in the short term with an understanding that they would actually get those benefits later, right? They What they thought they were doing is what generations of Americans thought they were doing when they are just people around the world that they were doing when they were putting money away today and saving today with the idea that there'll be something there in retirement, that I'll live better, that I'll have more wealth to pass on to my kids, that things are going to be better in the future, right? And so it was that very old-fashioned ethic that led to that, versus this desire to consume right now and hope for the future being better.
0: This is the part that fascinates me because, in a lot of cases, you know, this is obviously not universal. I mean, the 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 janitor and the uh, the, the guy out you know, mowing the, the grass is not doing economic policy for the city. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of innocent people kind of caught in the crossfire here. A lot of the people who were negotiating these deals and recommending this, th- they believed the growth narrative themselves. I mean, if they thought they were running a financial Ponzi scheme, if they, if they thought that like this wasn't going to pay off in the future, they never would have recommended like, okay, yeah, r- reduce my salary today or, or reduce my salary increase today uh, because 20 years from now, 30 years from now, I'll get a bigger pension. People did that because they believed that that would actually be a good investment they believed that if we just invested in more highway miles and more lanes and more subdivisions and more pipe and more, you know, sidewalk, that this, this would all turn out really well for us. And my heart goes out to them because when I'm sitting around that table, looking at everybody that benefits from the project, I don't condemn them. I mean, I I really don't think they were acting selfishly just as I don't think the guy negotiating the pension was acting selfishly they, they were they were making what was like a logical compromise in a sense sacrifice that people make all the time I'm going to put off like you said put off consumption today or I 'm going to put off uh, an immediate benefit and there'll be a long-term payback for that. what do you do now that that long-term payback was not real was not true it did, didn't happen and what couldn't happen? I don't know. I mean, I I feel like this is one of the big moral issues of our time, right? Should current or future generations pay for that mistake? Should the people who made that mistake pay for that mistake? I don't know. I mean, these are, uh, in a sense, part of the unsolvable problem that, you know, back years ago when people are saying, give us the solution. I'm like, "I, I don't know if some of these problems are solvable.
1: Is there even, like, you put it there as like, who should pay? Yeah, and I wonder to what degree that's even like a choice that we get to make. You know, is that really is there really a dynamic that allows us, or a set of policies, that allows us to make that choice? You say this, you know, really depressing thing among other depressing things in the in these couple chapters, where you talk about the fact that we've had a generation of. Consumption capacity, I mean, more than a generation, uh, where we've had starting, coming out of this World War II, into the baby boomers, going into the, you know, from the 50s and the 60s and 70s and 80s and so on, of just a lot of consumption um, where we ran up a lot of deficits, both, both in government but also personally. And that, in a classic sense, right, if we just look at like classic economics, the likelihood is we should anticipate a generation of corrective sacrifice. That we're going to actually see a gen- at least a generation where things are kind of terrible, right? That we're paying back these debts. Uh, is that inevitable? Is that avoidable? Like, how do you think about that kind of bleak moment that we're in?
0: I feel like it is inevitable. But let's entertain the, the other side of that argument for a second as a way to think it through. Because what we hear is we hear a lot of. I just read an article yesterday on how debt doesn't matter. I realize that the idea that federal deficits doesn't matter has a has a theoretical basis, and there's a lot of policymakers who, whether they believe it or not, are kind of forced to believe it because it's a, it's an easier thing to believe than than the opposite. But there's no question. I mean, there's no argument that for households, for families, for small businesses, debt has huge consequences. It it limits your future options, really. Yes, we have done everything we can as an inducement to bring future consumption into the present in order to keep our economy from sliding backward. In some estimates, and I think my estimate would be we've, we've brought multiple generations of consumption forward. How does that get fixed? If we look back in the past, Uh, we recognize that this is recurrent human behavior. Humans have done this uh, over and over, and not on the scale that we've done it. I mean, we've created these massive systems now that's been able to do it on a global scale, where in the past it would be the Venetian bubble over here or the the Portuguese bubble over there. And now, you know, we've done it on a, a global scale. This is different. I don't know the consequences. But when we look in the past, I mean, we always had debt jubilees. You, know, you can go read the Old Testament and you see that Jesus, forgive us our debts as we forgive others who are indebted to us. There was a, a, a process of purging the excess that we had created in our system because at some point the debts become so great that the system fails to function. We have tried to deal with that in the post-war era with inflation. We've tried to, and we did in, in the 70s, uh, in the early 80s. We tried to do this a little bit in the 90s. We've been desperately now trying to induce inflation since 2008 uh, with, you know, 0% interest rates and quantitative easing and, and and the Fed now, you know, directly pumping money into like the overnight repo market. I mean, we're doing everything we can to reliquify, in a sense, create monetary inflation as a way to deal with these overwhelming debts and the debts are just too big. They're just too big. I don't pretend to know. I don't pretend to understand how this will work itself out. There are a lot of very smart people who live in theory land, uh, whose theories suggest that if we just keep adding more debt and we just keep pumping more money into the system, that, uh, things will ultimately reset and work itself out. I'm skeptical of that. And I'm deeply skeptical because those same exact people are the ones who say, and the way we do this is by building more infrastructure, which I just plainly look at and go, well, the infrastructure is making us poorer. So what are we doing there? I don't know how this works itself out. And at the end of the day, I think if the book ended here, it would be really depressing because I I think that this chapter is depressing because as flawed humans, we've kind of insisted on doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on uh, the things that solve our immediate problem to the detriment of our long-term stability. And, and this is a recurring human narrative now done at grand scale. And, and yeah, I, I find that depressing, John. I do. I do. Well, let's, let's get a little more depressed
1: here. <laughs> That's really the purpose of discussing these two, these two chapters here. And, you know, turning back to the, to the infrastructure cult, which I think is really just an outbreak of this, what I'll call the larger like growth cult that comes out of all these factors that you just described, right? And that whole, the whole situation that you described. The infrastructure cult is really perhaps one of the most significant pieces and, uh, sex within that larger like approach, right? And we talked a little bit about one of the texts that you talk about inside your book of, of that infrastructure cult of this uh, American Society of Civil Engineers reports that come out regularly. But there are a bunch of other texts, right, uh, holy, holy texts of the uh, infrastructure cult that function in that same way that you talked about how the media and public officials report will point to this report that we'll see local engineers or public officials point to um, when you try to break free. Of the infrastructure cult, and and I'm just thinking what some of these things are. there, are things like there's there's actually a book out there of parking standards, and it tells you right exactly how much parking you need for any particular type of use. Where does that come from, and is that like fa- is that a factual based thing, or is it the same kind of uh, you know hocus pocus?
0: We were talking here a couple weeks ago. I wrote uh, an article about traffic engineers and, and referenced the manual and uniform traffic control devices, which in the vernacular is called the MUT CD. And someone made the comment that their engineer told them that the, the mutt CD is law. Like they can't follow it or they're breaking the law. And like, clearly on like page two, it says these are guidelines for the typical circumstance. I think when we look at things like parking standards or uh, highway construction standards, the mut CD or all these things, from a built environment standpoint, e- even the building codes and zoning codes, or the way we finance or insure, these things are all designed with one ethic over all others, and that is, you know, the growth efficiency model. When we standardize, for example, the secondary market for housing finance, we say single family homes qualify. And if you build a single family home and we go down the checklist and it has uh, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, um, there's a secondary market for that. And so your local bank can give you a loan a lot easier. Uh, That loan will then get turned around and sold onto a secondary market. So the, the local bank has very little risk with it. They, they don't have to worry about whether the appraisal is exactly right on or whether you really can repay that loan or not, or, you know, whether, uh, you know, the, your credit score is a good uh, reflection of your trustworthiness or your stability yourself. You don't have to worry about any of those things. It'll be sold onto a secondary market. And then the secondary market will take it. And because it's a standard product, because, uh, you know, a split entry 1980s home or a, a 1970s ranch house, they're, they're standard products. We can package them up with other standard products and we can sell them onto this big market. And then guess what? Your pension fund, which has to get rid of billions of dollars a year, uh, might get rid of, I mean, find a place to store it where it will pay a return. They can buy those pension funds and they'll use some debt to do that because they need to get a higher return than what, uh, than what your mortgage-backed security will pay, but they'll do that, so they'll leverage out and buy a bunch of those bonds. All of a sudden, what we've done is we've created this really efficient daisy chain with this massive feedback loop to it, where at the center of it is this growth story. It's this idea that if we just continue to efficiently, hyper-efficiently build this version of America over and over and over again, that it will all work out great if it starts to not work out great, well, we have an answer for that too. Let's just do more. Let's just do it faster. Tomas Sedlacek had this great line that I chuckle over sometimes. He's like, we, we didn't really know where we were going, but we compensated for that by speeding up. And it's really what we've done. We we've said, well, this, uh, this, this seems to be not working out. Well, well let's, let's just do it quicker and, and you know, more intensely. So you wind up with these absurdities like the parking standards which are essentially like a one size fits all kind of thing. Um, forget the fact that they're derived from, uh, you know, some uh, college intern who went out and sat at a McDonald's in some suburb, you know, back in the nineteen fifties or sixties or whatever, or sat at some, you know, drive-in joint and, and and wrote down, well, here's how many people parked here, and we want to have. uh, vacant at any time. And that became our standard. And then that standard, uh, got brought into the middle of a city. And if you're going to build a restaurant on main street, here's the, the parking standards for a restaurant, uh, as derived in, you know, our, our book on parking standards, it follows from that is if you want to build your restaurant and you want to get it financed, what are the finance people going to say? Well, do you meet the, the book on parking standards? And then if you want to roll that into a, a secondary market, the secondary market will say, well, to qualify to be as part of our uh, security, you, you've got to meet the parking standards. So all of a sudden, these ridiculous parking standards, and, and multiply this over a whole you know code of these efficiency things, becomes part of this destructive feedback loop that essentially drives the whole system. It, it, it becomes like the shaman I described earlier, like the oracle, where the financing is affirmed by the standards and the standards are affirmed by the financing. It's a pernicious model, John. I struggle sometimes to grasp the depth of it because every time I scratch a little bit more, um, th- these kind of big macro destructive feedback loops just come slapping you back in the face.
1: Well, let's look at another couple examples here. Um, and then I'll, I'll wrap us up. But Another example, right, is these level of service standards on streets and roads, right? And one of the primary ways that we decide how to build infrastructure, particularly transportation infrastructure, is based on these, on these levels of service. Can you explain like, what a level of service is and how that determines the width of our roads or how many lanes or how we construct our, our highways and streets and
0: roads? Do you want me to do this in a generous way? <laughs> sure, you either, either
1: you do it however you feel. If you're in a generous mood, I'm happy to hear a well, generous way. So Maybe.
0: so so let's be kind to engineers, right? Like let's be kind to engineers and, and let's look at it from their perspective. Engineers have been tasked with building and maintaining this transportation system. And they don't want to play favorites. They don't want to get involved in public policy and politics, although sometimes they do, but but that's that's kind of dirty work. That's not what A noble profession wants to do. So instead of prioritizing uh, this politician's highway or that pet project over there, what we'll do is we'll create an objective standard that will evaluate all roadways the same. This objective standard will take into account things like Uh, how quickly traffic flows, how much congestion there is, what the quality of the road surface is. Is there a lot of potholes? Is there wheel rutting? Are there alligator cracks? It'll factor in all these things and it will provide a a nice, clean rating. Think of back when you're in grade school and you get an A. You know, My kids come home with an A. I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. They come home with a C or a D and you're like, okay, what, what has happened here? So what we did is we said level of service A, Wonderful. Perfect. That's, that's a great, that is free flow of traffic on a great roadway, everything unhindered, everything from the transportation engineer standpoint, working as it should.
1: These are literal letter grades that we give to each road or street. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Uh, level of service F is, this is horrible. This is the worst. You're, you're completely congested. Uh, your traffic is not moving your roads in bad shape. And so, you know, if you give your engineer A budget and say, go out and build and go out and maintain, they can say, okay, we'll prioritize the ones that are level of service F or level of service D or E or, you know, lower on the, the, and and we'll try to bring those up to level of service A. And our our goal will be to maintain this objective standard. And doesn't that sound like quite delightful and quite, um, you know, from the, the engineer in me is like, oh, this is so ridiculously logical. The problem is the embedded values, right? Because what we've asked the engineer to do is to you know maintain this transportation network. We haven't asked them to build wealth in a place. Um, we haven't asked them to help our economic development strategy. We, we haven't asked them to help with affordable housing or, or public safety. We haven't asked them to help uh, the next Bill Gates meet the next Paul Allen and and uh, form a business or or two people to meet each other and and fall in love. We we haven't asked them to do any of those things. Um, we've just asked them to do one single thing, and we've given them an enormous budget to do it. And so when you take, for example, like level of service standards and you apply it on a local street instead of on a highway, what happens is when. Congestion happens, which you know happens on any successful street. Um, the engineer goes out there with the the this objective standard they've created, along with all the code books and guidelines and and you know standards that back up how to actually implement now a path to get to level of service A, and they will say things like we see on this highway in in North Carolina. I'm looking at today. <laughs> Highway 107. We need to take out 50 businesses in town, which, by the way, is three fourths of all the businesses in the city, because we have to add extra lanes, because we have to add more capacity, because we have to get to level of service A. Um, we are at an intolerable level of service D, um, and so you know our mandate is to to get to this other level. And what is lost is the nuance, right? What is lost is the meaning. Um, what is lost in all this kind of hyper efficiency? Is humanity, is he is, is humans, is like the human side of this, which, you know, I, I think in a different time was central. It's quite
1: tough to figure out how to do that, right? And I think the other thing that's really important that blew my mind about levels of service when I when I first learned about them was that that, that measurement, right, is set for peak traffic. So it's how do you reach an A-level of traffic at the at the ultimate level of traffic that's coming through town and whatever the highest level and the highest point of day is. But the rest of the day, you end up with a lot of just like extra capacity lying around, right? And it's like, how do we stop having to wait, you know, 30 seconds extra at the highest peak point? And so you're spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, I guess, billions and trillions of dollars across the entire country system to try to to solve a problem um, that could be just solved by people leaving work at slightly different hours.
0: I think this is where when people are critical of of government, even though roads are kind of a bipartisan you know, thing, but just people who are cynical of, of government say, these are the kind of bad feedback loops you get because of course the private sector has solved this. You know, you look at airlines and airlines don't have level of service. Um, they're looking at, you know, how do we get peak capacity? Um, how do we utilize our our planes all the time? And so, you know, you look at Thanksgiving and they charge you more to fly the day before Thanksgiving than they do, you know, two weeks earlier than that. In fact, if we want to be generous to government, where government has been forced to deal with this, such as transit systems, if you go to New York and ride the subway system, where they've actually been forced to deal with these congestion issues, not by just merely being able to build more capacity, but actually given the flexibility to set prices and the mandate to get the maximum amount of people in over the course of a day, you pay a higher price when you go and peak periods of time. That, that's, that's like how markets are supposed to work. That's like the feedback loop. Well,
1: they're, they're trying to do the same thing with cars, right? With congestion pricing, that same kind of concept, of having some kind of
0: feedback loop. In niche areas, I'm in central Minnesota today. We have, except among a tiny group of people, we have zero talk of congestion pricing. And, and the idea would be, absurd, would be absurd to anyone here in, in Minnesota, really, from a user standpoint. But yeah, I mean, New York City, Washington, D.C., uh, San Francisco, they're experimenting with this, uh, you know, Portland in different ways. Our mainstream response to hardship, particularly from an automobile standpoint, is just to add more capacity, which let me just point out, when the 35W bridge in Minneapolis collapsed back in 2005, 2006, somewhere in that time frame, the response that was predicted was that there would be absolute nightmare congestion. Like this is a major artery through the middle of Minneapolis-St. Paul. And the assumption was that commerce is just going to come to a standstill. Like nothing is going to work. There's no way we could survive with this. And the reality is commute times actually got better. People found different ways. They went at different times. They went earlier. They went later. There was no appreciable amount of congestion or delay despite this very unplanned, you know, quite horrific failure of this major artery through the middle of the city. When we talk about level of service and we get into this efficiency model, what we're starting to do is we're getting away from the complex adaptive nature of these systems and we're looking at them as simple like linear machines. And every example we have suggests that that is an overly simplistic view of the way these systems work.
1: So when some of these systems fail, it may not ultimately be as horrific as we think it's going to be now uh, because of the assumptions we have that they're so necessary. It may turn out, that some well, it is turning out that some of this infrastructure wasn't, that it was simply overbuilt in the first place. And then as we lose it, um, we actually find more clever ways to solve each of our problems that actually add up to a better collective experience.
0: Now you're transitioning to hope, John. I feel like that's the recognition is that we are pretty clever. There's this idea that We don't have to worry about running out of oil. We don't have to worry about the climate. We don't have to worry about, you know, name your things because humans are really smart. We're adaptable. Um, We'll figure out ways to cope, we'll figure out solutions. And embedded in that is a hopefulness, right? Like, uh, yeah, humans throughout history have adapted. We've figured things out, Uh, we've overcome challenges. But the reason we've adapted and overcome challenges is because to not do so is really painful. (laughs) And, you know, we experience stress. You can't have that ingenuity without the stress. And I think we're going to go through an an extreme amount of stress. I'm hopeful of what will come out the other side, uh, but I'm fearful of the kind of people we will be in the transition. And I'm fearful of some of the things we could do if we misdiagnose the cause of that stress. That, that, that I think is the thing more than the stress itself that keeps me up at night.
1: Well, we could leave it there, but there are two other things that I want to touch on before we leave, before we leave these chapters. And before I, I, I don't have a, um, a recording that I can hold you to here with the, with the, uh, all of our, or all of your fans listening. Uh, <laughs> so I, I could talk about this later, but the two things I wanted to cover was one um, was just this dynamic around trying to get out of the cult and just how hard that is of this infrastructure cult, right? It's it's very hard to escape. There's all those texts that we talked about, all these standards that you try to overcome. And I think oftentimes the first solution that people come to is, okay, I'm going to get out. Instead of building new infrastructure, we're just going to fix what we have. We're going to fix it first, right? Is a common like saying out there. And I remember trying to do that in, in our small town, actually the ta- one town over, was, was trying to fix a bridge that was falling down. And this bridge really was the way in and out of town for them, right? <laughs> so, like, it made sense for them to want to keep this bridge. And this was a small town, and there's two lanes going into the bridge, and two lanes on the other side of the bridge. And they go to try to get this bridge rebuilt, and they're told, well, clearly you need, you know, a three- to five-lane bridge. And why do you need a three- to five-lane bridge? It's because someday we're going to need to widen all the rest of these roads there. Right now, this is happening in 2000 and what, 10, 2000, you know, 2009, 2010, something along that time frame there. And so relatively modern, and it's unlikely that the money's going to ever exist to widen all those roads for this small town of, we're certainly talking hundreds, maybe a couple thousand, but not, not too many more than that people. It's unlikely that you're going to actually see that full road get widened all the way there. And so what you end up with is overbuilding this bridge and creating this infrastructure that's now even more expensive. And I guess they can replace it someday with a more narrow bridge when it comes up for replacement again. But it's just a crazy amount of waste that this system like generates and pushes us towards. And just so tricky to get out of this infrastructure cult. Do you have any tips when confronted directly by the cult? of what people can say to an engineer or what they can say to people in terms of like trying, like how do you break free of this cult mindset?
0: Yes, I know exactly what you mean. It's maddening because it's a political meme. The idea of fix it first is really popular. Like it pulls really well. And the vast majority of Americans are like, yes, we should be fixing our infrastructure before we should be doing anything else. But the infrastructure cult hears that and they do exactly what you're saying. Well, the way we fix this this bridge uh, is we bring it to level service A because the the thing that's broken is it's at level service you know F so or D or whatever or theoretically in the future as we project out uh, the the massive growth we're seeing it might be at level of service A today but we project that it will be at level service D thirty years from now. Therefore, as long as we're doing this bridge fixing it. Let's fix it, fix it, and make sure we've got it covered. For you and me, this would be called expansion, right? <laughs> right? Like this would be called uh, more capacity. For the infrastructure cult, this is what fixing it means. So when you, when you see these stats that like, well, we're spending 60% on maintenance and 40% on expansion. No, it's like 80% on <laughs> expansion and 20% of It's actually worse because of how we categorize this stuff. There's an Upton Sinclair quote, That was given to me back in like the mid two thousands that has stuck with me, and it it goes like this: It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. I think that's just a recognition of human nature. It's not something pernicious per se, Um, but it is this idea that you know I'm sitting around the table with all these people, all of which benefit directly from this project they're all decent people. They're all good human beings. They all believe that they're doing the best for society, but it's very easy for them to believe that when they're personally rewarded for it. And it's very difficult for them to believe the opposite when they're punished for it. My, my father-in-law is a civil engineer. He's in his seventies now. So he would have worked on like the early highway projects. He read my book. He you know, had some interesting things to say about it. But I I remember the day when I looked at him and I thought, I'm really suggesting as part of Strong Towns that a whole lot of your career has not only been a failure, but has been destructive to this society. How hard of a pill is that to swallow? I I don't know if I could. I I don't know if I could be his age and and having done the things that I did for the reasons I did them, which I, I, I believe were all good and honest and decent. And look back and say, wow, I, I really caused harm to society. I, I, I think that that's a hard thing to ask. So for me, the more pragmatic approach has been, we need more verdunities, right? We need more tool groups. We need, we need more of these engineering firms that actually have, are making money doing the types of projects that in today's system benefit society. So this is a huge emphasis on maintenance and maintenance as an obsession of fixing things, not uh, as a, like a cover for expansion, and then scaling yourself to do these little bets. And, and that's really what I get into in, in chapters 7 and 8 and 9, how we retool to do that. I think we have to come up with, in a sense, engineering models or models of the engineering and planning profession that value those things and ask them to solve those problems as opposed to what are problems of the past. Our challenge is not now kinetic growth. It's actually building wealth. And if we shift people to thinking of it in that way, I think that these good, decent people who do this work will come up with a a better set of responses.
1: And as you point out, right, it's not just painful for your father-in-law and for a generation of engineers, but for an entire generation, right, and multiple generations that have been Part of this process, really, all of us, right, have been building our cities in this way and taking part of it with the with the loans and everything else and the construction as we try to figure out these things and the deals that we make around pensions and everything. Right? It's a huge group of people that have been part of creating this this reality and been part of this infrastructure cult. Uh, really, everybody, and that we've all been trapped in this mind frame together. And I think that that is a a painful and depressing realization. And and the last thing I want to note about it, right, is that it's all wrapped up in, in economics and theories and numbers and reports and things and all this sort of, you know, often sort of pseudoscientific like reasoning that starts to fall apart when you start saying, wait, we're going to save a trillion dollars by spending two trillion dollars. That doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: We're going to reduce our carbon output by uh, making it easier to drive. It's just like absurdities It's like how, how does you mentally contort yourself to get to that, you
1: know? And we're going to start drawing these lines and say, hey, these are the only neighborhoods we're going to invest in now.
0: Right. Right. And part
1: of, and you you know, this just briefly in the chapter, but I just want to bring it out a little bit more because I feel like a lot of the work that you've done with Urban Three that does all those great, um, you know, charts of cities of where wealth is created and where it's not, right? And as this was talking about inside of uh, cities at the time, there's this whole element of it that this delusion of generating wealth, when really we were just deferring costs, allowed us to really, um, endorse certain people, particularly poorer people and people of color, right. And create these arbitrary lines around communities where we even said, well, we're not even going to invest there anymore because clearly those communities are not financially good investments. When what we now know from the work that, uh, that you and urban three have done together, uh, that, in fact, those were actually some of the most financial places
0: the entire time. Th- those are the best investments, right? Yeah,
1: The best places to invest, right? right this is right. the place where we should actually be putting in more money, and we' actually there's actually really important creative things taking place here that could be engines of development, right? it's the It's the Jane Jacobs lesson, and the same thing around urban renewal, where we actually took those places and said, we actually got to get rid of these places to put in this new infrastructure and these new highways. We're going to actually demolish these areas um, of incredible life and vibrancy and potential wealth generation because we've created this different approach around growth. To have the growth, we need to have these big highways coming through. Part of this whole thing was it really dehumanized things in a way. It really let us step back and say, we're going to support this these big, really disconnected programs, justified by these numbers and by these quote-unquote expertise that allowed us to escape responsibility for really serving people, and particularly people that weren't already hanging out in our boardrooms or in the halls of our Congress or in City Hall or in the engineering profession. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or like how that interplays with all of this.
0: It's like the issue of our time, right? It's very difficult to piece this all together in a way that doesn't make you kind of sick to your stomach i am want to when i look back in history judge with generosity and largely that's because i hope history looks back at me and judges with generosity (laughs) you know uh i'm just a guy trying to figure this stuff out trying to do the best i can i'm flawed Uh, i've recognized in the past where i've you know through myopia and, and ignorance put myself ahead of uh of what maybe my stated values and objectives were. I mean, when I'm giving engineering recommendations for cities to take on lots of debt and run roads here and do this and that, I generally believed I was helping, but it's easy for me to recognize how that that belief wasn't really being challenged in a way that maybe would have revealed some deeper truths to me. I look back and I, I see this long history of us, if we look at it from just the engineer's standpoint, we're going to build this highway and we want to build it as cheap as possible with our budget constraints. Where should we put it? Let's put it here through the neighborhood where we can buy up the land the cheapest. You know, let's put it through this neighborhood where the people are essentially not going to show up at the meetings and fight us. Cause then we're going to get it done quicker and have uh, more budget left over for asphalt and, and concrete. These are horrible things in practice, but the disconnect and really the numbing, reliance on efficiency or the false comfort of efficiency and growth as being this soothing thing for the pain we're causing, I think just allowed us to ignore the real costs of this stuff. I also just think to flip that around, a lot of times our our natural instinct is to say, we can right these wrongs by taking the tools we used in the past Uh, That gave us urban renewal and highways through neighborhoods and redlining and uh, and all these kind of big tools of the past that were misused. And we can, in a sense, take these things that were bad and flip them around and then use them for good.
1: We're going to accomplish Jane Jacobs' goals through Robert Moses' tactics.
0: That's our saying is like, we read Jane Jacobs and now we're inspired. And so let's take all these things that Robert Moses did and we'll just do them differently. And... I think what's lost there, and if you read your Jane Jacobs closely, you'll grasp it, is that humans are not chess pieces, neighborhoods are are not like Lego blocks. These are messy places with complex interactions and, and, and real humans who have desires and and wills and and have both love and hate and good and bad in them. And, and I think if we lose that local nuance, if, if we bring everything down to a level of service measurement? Or does this loan qualify on the secondary market? Any of these like blunt metrics of growth and efficiency that we've created, no matter how well our intentions are, we're going to steamroll the most disadvantaged. And at the end of the day, double down on the huge amount of damage that this experiment has done, not only to our places, but, but to, I think, people who suffer the most. I do feel like there's a lot of hope in a more localized, more human, more nuanced approach. But yeah, I think there will be people who will read chapters four and five and say, oh yeah, let's stop listening to the American Society of Civil Engineers. Let's listen to the American Society of Professional Engineers, who has this like slightly different top-down take on things. And (laughs) no, I I think we need to be more humble just across the board, right?
1: This is why I wanted to close here, because it gets at the most common pushback from the infrastructure cult, when you start to push back on their numbers, right? What we'll always hear back is that common refrain, which is, and you write about this in the book, well, wait, there's all these intangible things you're missing. There's these other social value that's being produced. What we've missed most about over the decades about the, the growth cult and the infrastructure cult, you know, the growth cult's my turn to phrase it, but it really, I see the infrastructure cult as a subset within that as I read your book, is that there's all of these societal costs that have been ignored, to this approach. There's all this vibrancy in life that's been erased or been able to been ignored and set aside and disvested in. All of these things have been missed, right, be- because of our devotion to the ideas that are actually making us poor. And so the cost doesn't simply end at this financial cost, but it actually goes a lot deeper than that um, into people who've been locked out of the opportunity to actually generate wealth, of uh, people who've had their neighborhoods taken away from them and had their community dismantled and broken up in an attempt to drive efficiency.
0: I'll go a step further, John. The poorer neighborhoods that today are are in reality subsidizing the wealthier neighborhoods are still denied basic infrastructure maintenance. They still have sidewalks falling apart, weeds overgrowing their parks, potholes in their streets, streetlights that are out. So this continues, and a lot of it continues because we've told ourselves this comforting story about if we can just create more growth, then we'll eventually get back to helping those people who are left behind. And I, I think we've got 70 years showing us that that really is not true. Right. And I
1: think that the lesson that we're going to go into in these, in these next chapters is as you talk to others about them and as people get a chance to read the book, which by the way, a phenomenal accomplishment to finally actually summarize all of this within the binding pages here to like, you know, Six, seven years, or a decade of reading and getting to talk to you, really summarized here in a neat package to understand it a lot faster than than the uh, often depressing journey we've gotten to go through together. <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, but but is that it's time to start with people? It's time to start where people live. Enough of worshiping these levels of service. Um, Enough of worshiping this handbook or that handbook or the latest uh, uh, report and this summarization of how much money we can make by saving people thirty seconds in their drive time, and it's time to actually start looking at where people live and and starting there, and the only way to start there right is to actually go to that neighborhood scale, is to actually go to where people live and talk with them and also uh, respect their autonomy and have them be part of that decision making and not have everything be done. somewhere far away, but actually have experts that are actually in the community and interacting with the community and see themselves in partnership with people.
0: Right. When you look at the idea that only Nixon could go to China, you know, only this strong, virulent anti-communist could step up and and go uh, essentially have substantive discussions with the communists. There is a certain aspect of only an engineer can start talking about this you know, stuff that if if some hippie started talking about it, it would just be peace and love and, you know, you're just a big hippie. There's a lot here that I think I have the capacity to say because of my background, because of my education, uh, because of where I come from, that I think other people have been saying for a long, long time, but have not been heard in the same way that you know now I am, am capable of being hurting just because of those those initials behind my name and, and the degrees I have and the credentials I have. I, I think if we do more time listening to uh, listening to people about their own neighborhoods, uh, we would actually learn a lot more than, uh, than if we read all the the engineering manuals that have ever been produced.
1: Well, I don't think that's too grandiose, and I agree. You are the Nixon of engineering, <laughs> and uh, I would encourage everyone to read the book uh, and buy the book, uh, "Strong Towns: The Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity," written by Chuck Marone, you know, who is sort of the founder of Strong Towns, all of you know, the host of this uh, podcast, but most importantly, uh, the Nixon of engineering. The Nixon uh, of thanks engineering. Thanks so much, Chuck, for taking the time to uh, talk with me about uh, about your book and about these two largely depressing chapters don't worry folks there's more to the book than there that's just sort of the the midpoint of depression before it starts becoming a little bit more uplifting and <laughs> suggesting now uh, what you can do to build strong towns
0: so if, if i'm the nixon of engineering was that, does that make you like ehrlichman or are you um the pat buchanan or what, what 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 part of this are you then john um
1: i fear that i could be kissinger and i don't know how to feel about that
0: <laughs> ah okay well we'll keep we'll keep working on that theme
1: i'm i'm coming with you on the trip helping plot the trip with you that's true um ultimately very engaged uh but also deeply worried when i watch you descend into bouts of paranoia (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all right thank you john thank you jack
0: take care i'll talk to you later friend you too. all right bye-bye thanks everybody for listening keep doing what you can to build strong towns take care
1: Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go on bankrupt.
0: Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pot right now.
1: Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marrone, this has been fascinating.